0: your hunger for the Lord. Um, I want to thank the worship team for leading our hearts and directing us to worship this morning. Um, and uh, if you're a visitor with us, if you're a guest, welcome. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in a series right now on Hebrews chapter 11, and we're walking through Hebrews 11 verse by verse. And, uh, you know, as I was preparing this week, my heart was stirred in in a certain direction. And um and I want to tell you a little bit about the sort of the passion of my heart this morning. Um, and it's just the direction that God has led me. But really what's driving my message this morning is a desire for us as a church to understand how it is that faith changes us. Because, I mean, it's one thing to have a series on faith, and that's great to talk about faith and kind of break it down and look at different aspects of faith... But when it really comes down to it, I mean, aren't you asking the question, I hope you are, you should, is, okay, but what does that mean? Like, how does faith actually change me? Um, Because I I would assume that you want to be changed, that you don't want to just come to church every week and go through a, a, a religious Christian experience, but you want God to be at work in your heart doing some things And you can see the progress and growth. Isn't it encouraging when you look back on your life and you say, Man, I can see that some things are happening. I'm growing. I'm going somewhere. Things are changing. And it's discouraging, on the other hand, when you like burn through like months and you're like, man, I I don't feel like I'm growing at all or I'm going backwards even worse or I'm just stagnating and this is just not good. That's really discouraging. And so part of the impetus of this series is that God would be at work in our hearts moving us and changing us. And so what I want to ask the question this morning is how is it when we come to the walls of Jericho and this passage in Joshua 6, how is it? that faith actually enabled these guys to do what they did? What was the source of it? Um, And we need to ask that question. What is it about their faith specifically that enabled them, think about this, to conquer a city with no weapons? What gave them such courage and confidence? And like a good doctor, we need to find the source of their faith. What's it rooted in? And I believe that it is rooted fundamentally in their theology of God. They believe some things about God very deeply, and it enabled them to do what they did. Now, years ago, John Piper preached a very famous sermon to tens of thousands of students uh, in Texas uh, at the one-day conference. And he said something to this effect, that the people who have done most for God in this world are people who have understood a few things about God. And those things that they understood about God, they were mastered by. They they were mastered by those things. And, And then I would add that to the extent that they were mastered by them, it changed and altered the course of their life. And in this text, I see five truths about God that these guys were mastered by. And if these truths begin to grip us begin to own us, begin to master us, then I'm convinced it'll change the course and the pattern of our life as well. So let's pray to that end this morning as we begin. Father, I I ask that the upshot of this service and sermon would be glory and honor to Jesus Christ, to whom belongs dominion forever and ever. And I pray that a new, deep, transforming love would produce a kind of faith in our church, a radical, in time, Christ-exalting, sin-covering, gospel-proclaiming faith in our church. And so, grant that your holy word, Lord, would now come with power and be heard, and that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts as He opens even my mouth this morning, and that we would be changed in all the ways that we could imagine that would glorify and magnify Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're continuing our series in Hebrews 11, and we've come now to verse 30. Hebrews 11.30, which is really a summary of Joshua chapter 6. So we're going to spend most of our time in Joshua 6 because I mean, there's not a lot here in Hebrews 11. There's just one verse that Adam read for us, and it's pointing us back to Joshua 6 and the fall of Jericho. Now, if you grew up in church as a child, you obviously remember this passage. I mean, it's, a, it's in every Bible story, every kid sort of uh, who grows up in a Christian context. It's a, it's, a, it's a very well-known story, and so you remember this. It's one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. And again, it teaches us about faith. In fact, all through this series in Hebrews 11, we've seen that God honors those who trust Him. And so even though we're in the middle of an Old Testament series, I, I want to be clear that it needs to be said that God's dealings with His people are universally the same. So it's not like God just moved on these people in Joshua and you know we're out here and God's not doing that kind of work in our life. That's not true. Of course He is. He's moving in the same way. It's just a different context. We're different people living in a different time and living in a different country. But God's works with his people are the same. The life of faith is always filled with obstacles. In fact, if you think about it, there's always reasons for us not to believe. Some of those obstacles are out there. Some of them are in here. But true faith does not ignore obstacles or pretend that they're not real, what true faith does is it sees beyond the obstacles to God's promises and acts on the truth of His Word. And that's what faith does. It's why we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. When we walk by sight, see, what happens is we shrink back when we come in contact with an obstacle. We become fearful. We shrink back. But true faith looks beyond the obstacle... ...to the reality of God's Word. And so this morning, I want us to see what prevailing faith looks like. This is prevailing faith. What kind of faith does it take to overcome life's most serious obstacles? And I don't mean that in a trite way. I mean that some of you all are going through some serious stuff. And you will, if you're not now, you will be confronted with some serious stuff in life... And the question we need to ask is, when you get hit with that, what kind of faith does it take to push through that and not crumble underneath such an obstacle? And what we'll see is the faith that overcomes is a faith that has a rock-solid theology of God. Which, by the way, that's the reason why preaching matters. That's the reason why solid churches and faithful expository preaching matters because what gives you a rock-solid theology of God? And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, we're trying to, in our own churches, is by God's grace and through His help, is to give you all a strong, rock-solid theology, so that when suffering comes, that you are able to stand on the rock. So let me give you some background here of Joshua 6. If you're not already there, turn to Joshua 6. Uh, the people of Israel now are really on the edge of the promised land. God had promised this land to them, but Israel quickly realizes that the land is not empty. Uh, it's filled actually with vengeful, uh, militant, tyrant nations. So Israel's not really given a welcome party when they begin to come into the land. Instead, they're facing uh, a, a huge challenge in front of them, unthinkable opposition which means that really they can't move further into the land until they get past Jericho. They must first get past this large city. Now, the walls of this city were so thick that they say, scholars say, that houses were actually built in these in these walls. I mean, uh, archaeologists have sort of argued that perhaps these walls were 12 feet thick, maybe 18 feet high. So we're talking about massive fortress here. And... This is one of the oldest cities in the world, Jericho is. It is located near the Jordan River. It's what we know today as the West Bank of Israel. And uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, it's given the nickname of the city of palm trees because there was a great water source that surrounded the city and actually is very fertile ground and there are palm trees everywhere in Jericho. It's a beautiful place. The key players in Joshua 6 are Joshua, obviously... Uh, He's the second in command to Moses. In fact, when Moses died, Joshua begins to lead God's people. Uh, the, The other major figure in Joshua 6 is Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho. She hid some Israelite spies. And then the priests are other major characters in this. The priests are called to carry the Ark of the Covenant around the city when they march around the city. And the priests have a prominent role. And obviously, the Lord plays the dominant role in Joshua 6. The Lord is called the commander of the Lord's army in chapter 5, verse 13. Now, use your imagination for a moment, okay? This group of former slaves, they've come out of the Exodus. Now, they've been 40 years in the the wilderness. There's actually 40 years between the Red Sea Crossing and Jericho. So, 40 years have passed between Hebrews 11.29 and Hebrews 11.30. And... This group of former slaves has no ability whatsoever to bring down the walls of Jericho. They have no weapons. They're not accustomed or acquainted with siege warfare. They have no idea what they're going to do. They just show up and they just know they have to go in and they've got this massive thing in front of them. So it would go against all conventional wisdom for them to try to attempt to take this city. But they do. They try to overtake it by faith. No weapons, just faith in God. And really, that's the point of this text. In it, we see the power of faith. The fact that faith makes obstacles nothing. Now, as we we think about this, Israel's history is a story of God's remarkable grace. And it's mixed with imperfect faith. And I'm encouraged by that because it's encouraging to know that God is not looking for great faith so much as He's looking for genuine faith. And Joshua believed five key things about God, and those things affected how he lived. And if we learn those five things, then it will change our lives as well. Well, here's the first thing that Joshua believed about God. He believed that God is worthy. God is worthy, and here's how it affected his life. Therefore, I will consecrate my life to him. God is worthy, therefore, I will consecrate my life to him. The passage starts in chapter 5, verse 13. Let's read that together. It says this, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So see, before we even get into the battle, before the battle even starts, Joshua dedicates himself to God. He worships. And I want you to notice several phrases here. The first is found in verse 13. We read there in verse 13 that when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. All right? Now think about that expression. At this point, Joshua was probably on the outskirts of the city looking around, trying to evaluate, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to walk into the city and do anything? What are we going to do? He's thinking probably tactically. He's thinking strategically. What are we going to do? And as he's in this trying to determine how the best way to conquer this city, it's obvious to him that he doesn't have the power, he doesn't have the expertise, they don't have the equipment, they don't have the artillery, they don't have the weapons of warfare. And so the text says he lifted up his eyes, which means his eyes were down. Why were his eyes down? What was he doing with his eyes down? Well, presumably he was praying. Joshua would have been overwhelmed with a task in front of him. In fact, to lift up one's eyes, as the Hebrew text says, or as actually throughout the Old Testament, to do this is an expression of trust in God. So think about a couple of verses. David says in Psalm 25, unto you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Psalm 121, again, we read, I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So this idea of lifting up one's eyes is an idea of trusting in God. Joshua was praying. But secondly, Joshua is worshiping. We see this in verse 14. Look at 14. It says that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. What made him do that? Well, I think what made him do it was verse 13. When When you look there, it says that he sees this strange figure before him, and this man is standing with a drawn sword in his hand. And he says to them, he says to him, Are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And the man replied, Neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this moment, Joshua realizes, "Uh Uh-oh, whoa, I'm not dealing with a, a mere human being here, that I'm dealing with a Lord himself. Joshua comes to grips with that, and that's one of this is one of these pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in human form. And this appearance of the Lord caused Joshua to fall on the ground and worship. He says, "What message does my Lord have for his servant?" Now, this is language of consecration; it's language of devotion. He's worshiping, and he says. He says, what can I do for you, O God? He says, Lord, I'm at your service. I'm all ears. Tell me what you want me to do, and I'm going to do it. He's humbling himself. He's worshiping before the Lord. So Joshua prays. He worships. And this is just total consecration of his life. He consecrates his life. What does it mean to consecrate your life? It means to beautify. It means to sanctify, to dedicate, to set your life apart. The idea here is a life of holiness and devotion to the Lord. And so God says to him in verse 15, when he says, what can I do for you? The Lord says to him here, very simple thing, verse 15. He says, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Now, this would have surely reminded Joshua of the same words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. When God said to Moses, remove your sandals, the place you are standing is holy ground and Joshua would have been thinking, just like God was with Moses, so God is going to be with me. What a comfort this would have been to Joshua. And I love how chapter 5 ends. Look at the last phrase. It says, and Joshua did so. He removed his sandals. Which is interesting because we shouldn't just pass over phrases like that. Because I think God includes that in part because he's demonstrating how immediate Joshua's obedience was. And how simple his obedience was. Nothing is too small for God to take notice of. He takes note of our simple acts of obedience. In fact, he felt it was so important that he included it in Scripture. So this is the first thing that faith recognizes about God. God is worthy. Before there's any talk about the battle, Joshua is found worshiping God. He's bowed down in the presence of God. And before we go off to serve God in ministry... Or whatever we're doing. We must get this priority straight. Before we go off in parenting. Or before we go off in marriage or ministry. We must get this right. Total surrender is the issue. It reminds me of the hymn by Francis Havergal. Who penned these lyrics. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. In that song you know what he says? He goes through a litany of things. He says take my life take my moments, take my days, take my hands, take my feet, take my voice, take my lips, take my silver and my gold, take my intellect, take my will, take my heart, take my love. And then he ends this way, take myself and I will ever be only all for thee. That's consecration. You just think about your life for a minute. What a precious an awesome thing this is. To consecrate your life to God. And I'm praying for our church. I'm praying for myself that we will move in this direction. Of total consecration to the Lord. Of completely saying. I mean, Maybe there's some things that you're holding on to this morning. Some things that for the last several weeks or months. You've just been gripping onto And you're not, you're not willing to let it go. And God's saying, look, I want all of you. I don't want part of you. I want all of you. I want your whole heart. I want your whole soul. I want everything that is inside of you. I want your life. I want your prayer life. I want your communion with me life. I want your Bible intake life. I want your fellowship. I want your service. I want your ministry. I want all these things, your gifts, the talents that God has given you to be put to work. I want your time. I want your energy. I want your efforts. And you know, we're just so into ourselves so often. We're so selfish. And may God move us into increasing consecration and devotion to Him. It's what Joshua did. And it's what all of us should do. Think about this. The surrender of Joshua comes before the surrender of Jericho. There's no surrender of Jericho until Joshua is first surrendered. Or how about Jonah? The subduing of Jonah comes before the revival in Nineveh. This is a principle. Something has to happen inside us before God moves. And that's always true in the Christian life. The one who lies in the place of worship is the one that the Lord uses. Maybe you're saying, man, I just feel like God doesn't use me. I feel like my life's a waste. I feel so unproductive. I feel so unfruitful in the Christian life. And I would I would remind you this morning that part of that might be because you have not devoted your heart to the Lord. There's not been this surrender, this whole souled surrender and, and, and break down. God has got to break us down before God. He begins to move, move in us and use us. So, break down. I mean, that's an important feature. Just, God, break me down. Get me outside of myself and my flesh and, and change me, O oh God. Make me new. Break me and rearrange me and use me for your glory. So, that's the first thing we see about Joshua. It's consecration. It's devotion. It's worship. Well, a second truth Joshua believed about God is this. God is with me, therefore I will be confident. God is with me, therefore I'll be confident. This is the first thing that he remembered probably when God told him when he was appointed leader over Israel, Joshua 1, nine. What did God say to him? He said this, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go he'll be with you wherever you go. Surely Joshua would have remembered this. The second thing we see in this chapter is the language of the ark of the covenant. If you just scan through chapter 6, you'll see that this ark of the covenant, which was symbolic of God's presence, that God tells Joshua to have the priests take up the ark of the covenant and walk around the city with it and it was following them. Which was an indication that God's presence and his power is with them. And he's following God's people. And he says, take it and walk it around the city. You know the phrase, Ark of the Covenant appears nine times here in 27 verses. It's very prominent in this chapter. And it's very symbolic of God in the fact that he is present with his people. But there's more. All right, This is the idea. God is with me, therefore I'll be confident. There's so much of this here. Look at verse 2. The Lord makes a promise to Joshua. He says, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings and its fighting men. So he gives Joshua assurance of victory before the thing even starts. In other words, not only am I with you, not only is the Ark of the Covenant following you, not only have I made a promise to you in Joshua 1 not to be courageous and strong, but I'm going to tell you up front that you're already going to win this battle. So the victory is over. You've already won. And finally, in verse 27, I mean, if we're just adding bricks on top of bricks here, piling up the evidence, the Lord said, it says, we read, the Lord was with Joshua. So this is the confidence that he had. God is with me, therefore I will be confident. Now, was he afraid? I'm, I'm sure he was. I mean, wouldn't you? This is a part of being a human being. The face of an obstacle like this, I'm sure he was afraid, but he remembered this fundamental truth that God is with me. And there's a lesson in that for us, and it's this. The way to overcome fear in the face of an obstacle is to focus on God and not the circumstances. And it's so easy, isn't it, to get hung up on the circumstances? Like, how am I going to get through this? Like, I'm looking at the checkbook, I'm seeing the finances, I don't know how this is going to happen. And God's saying, look, stop, get away from that, look at me, keep your face on me, turn your eyes to me, keep focused on me. And as we meditate on the Lord and see his works, every challenge becomes surmountable in the presence of a holy and all-powerful God. You must take your eyes off your circumstances and turn them toward your great defender and deliverer. And for some of you, that's hard. It's really hard to do because you have years, years and years of habitual sort of looking at your circumstances, staring them in the face, being afraid of those things and not being able to move forward. You're crippled by that. And uh, for others of you, maybe it's a little bit easier to look at God. But for all of us, we have got to learn that discipline. And so when Israel crossed the Jordan River they burned all the boats and bridges behind them. In other words, they were moving forward. They were going forward. They were moving ahead because they knew God was with them. And when the Lord appeared before Joshua and he said to them, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Here's another thing. Here's another brick. He says, now I have come. Which means you don't know how to take this city, but listen, I'm the commander of the Lord's army and I'm here now. So, you don't have anything to worry about. Not only is the victory won, but I'm leading this charge and I'm in the front. You all get behind me and we're going to win this thing. All the confidence, think about this, is just oozing up in Joshua because of all this truth that he's hearing about God. God was with him. He's saying, Joshua, I'm the one who will bear this responsibility. And what a word of comfort that should be to us because it ought to take the fear out of serving God. Some of us are afraid to serve God or step out into into new vistas because we're afraid of what the challenge might be. Like, I can't do that. I can't make that sacrifice. If I move my family to the Horn of Africa, like we might die. We might get Ebola. We might get sick. Something might happen. I can't do that. And 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 this should take all that off of us because what God is essentially saying to us is that, of course, there'll be some stress and strain. But ultimately, this is not for us to bear. There's a certain kind of strain that God knows we ought to be released from because the ultimate responsibility rests with God and not us. The victory rests with Him. And Joshua meets the Lord And the Lord says to him, Joshua, I have a jealous regard for my own name and my own cause. And as the captain of the Lord's army, I will see to it that the work is done. And we should have confidence because we have, think about this, all the resources of heaven and earth at our disposal. The sovereign God of the universe with all of his weight and all of his glory and all of his power is saying, I am with you. So, we have all the resources at our disposal. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. In spiritual terms, that means that we don't move toward victory, we move from a position of victory. And you think about that. That's exactly the principle that's taught. God tells Joshua, the battle is already won, and Joshua just needs to move. From that position of victory into full triumph. And and that's such an encouraging thing. God is with me. I will be confident. Now that's true for us. We have been saved. We've been washed. We've been reconciled to God. There's nothing else that can harm us. I mean, man can kill us, man can 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 kill the body, but God, no no man can take your relationship with Christ away. You're saved, you're redeemed, you're reconciled, you're forgiven. And so the victory and the battle has ultimately been won. We've just got to get through this life. So Joshua is filled with his courage. That's the third thing he knows. That's the second thing he knows about God. God is with me. Therefore, I'll be confident. Third, God is reliable. Therefore, I will trust his ways. Now, think about this who ever heard of a city being demolished? Because a group of people walked around it. Has that ever happened before? Has that battle ever been won that way? God's ways are not our ways. They seem strange to us. And even if it seemed utterly ridiculous, Joshua knew that God was reliable. And even though this sounds totally crazy, that I can still trust His ways because He's reliable. So God gives him these crazy instructions. Verse 3. I mean, they get to the city and God's like, all right, here's the deal. I want you to march around the city and I want you to put the priest out in front and I want, them to blow, I want you guys to blow some horns and then I want you to march around the city once each day for six days and then on the seventh day, I want you to go around the city seven times and then I want you to blow those ram's horns and shout as loud as you can. And I, I bet that was kind of an interesting moment when they heard those instructions. It was kind of something like, so, come again, what did you say? What are we supposed to do? Yeah, you're supposed to walk around the city, and and you're going to go around it, and then on the last day, you're going to, and these guys are like, hey, Joshua, like, when's this going to be over? They're like, three days into this thing. Can we stop this now? When is this going to stop? And Joshua's like, no, we're not done yet. We're going to go around tomorrow, we're going to go around seven times. And they're like, oh, great. So are they going to be throwing rocks over the wall again at us, and, and what exactly is going to happen here? And and, and man, and, and so when is this going to be over? And they're going to be laughing at us again. And Joshua's like, listen, don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to blow our trumpets and then shout real loud and the walls are going to fall down. Now, this requires faith, not only from Joshua's standpoint, but from the people to follow this guy. And sometimes, here's the reality, is that some of the, the, the commands that God gives us seem absolutely ludicrous. They seem crazy. And you think, man, I, I'm, this is not, I can't do this. And the people must have been tempted to look at Joshua and say, what are you doing? You can't, why are you leading us in this? What's going on? This is crazy. I mean, could anything on earth seem more utterly ridiculous F.F. Bruce says it this way, he says, On the face of it, nothing would seem more foolish than for grown men to march around a strong fortress for seven days, led by seven priests blowing ram's horns. This must have seemed like total folly to Israel, but here's the point. Joshua took God at his word and did what he said because God said it and God is faithful. And that's all that matters. God said it and he's faithful. Understand this, God uses foolish things to accomplish his purposes for a very simple reason. The more foolish it appears, the more faith it requires. If he didn't use foolish things, we wouldn't be forced to trust him. We would go in, take the city, and then boast about our greatness and how good we are. And how we got this done, and look what we did, and look how strong and mighty and great we are. Any other method of strategy or human ingenuity would have caused Israel to praise themselves and not God. And God knew that and said, I'm not going to play into your, into your pride and arrogance. Instead, I'm going to give you a foolish, seemingly foolish method. And then you're going to have to totally rely on me. And then I'm going to prove I did it and not you. And then you will give me the praise and glory. It's really a testimony to Israel's sin and their pride. And so this is what God does. God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. The foolishness of the cross is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of the cross stronger than the strength of men. And here for a moment God is showing his people that this is the fundamental principle of how the kingdom of God advances. And Paul says we are able, Paul says, to pull down strongholds in this world because our weapons are mighty through God. What are our weapons that are mighty through God? Here they are. Here, here are the weapons, our humble Christian testimony, our weak and broken faith, our efforts to get up in the morning and go to a quiet place and commune with God. To talk to an invisible God and plead with him to advance his cause in the world. A group of people go and they get into a room. And they begin praying for a, for a missionary in a third world country. And they're praying and laboring over that missionary. And God moves and something powerful happens. Because a group of people in faith gathered together and talked to an invisible God that they could not see. And the hand of, that controls the earth and the world is moved. These are the weapons that pull down strongholds prayer is the essence of that but hear me this morning god delights to use broken and busted up people like you and me as long as we trust him i'm sure the world looks at us and says what well, i mean how foolish it is to gather together, a group of people to gather together in a room at a church and pray to an invisible God. And yet this is how the kingdom advances. It pulls down strongholds. And when we pray and when we gather together and when we trust God and when we go after him by faith, we do that and the opposition is crushed. Demonic realm, the whole thing is just is threatened when we gather together together. And we pray and we seek God. God asks us to believe his word and act upon it no matter how we feel, because God promises a good result. You mean you just want me to blow this trumpet? Yeah. You mean you mean you want me to walk around, you know, and, and just and and not talk for yeah. I want you to pray. You you're kidding me, right? No. This is God's ways. Listen, God wants to get us to a place where we trust Him. When those walls fell down, it's not like one of the trumpet players was like, man, I really played great today. That was awesome. And it was because of my great uh, sort of horn skills that the walls came down. That's ludicrous. Nobody would have said that. They knew for a fact it was God. God allows circumstances to unfold in such a way that no man can boast. Now, I don't know what the situation is in your life that you're facing right now. But I want to encourage you with this truth is that faith makes obstacles nothing. Do you believe that? Faith makes obstacles nothing. God responds to you at the point of your greatest need by faith. And what battle currently rages before you that can only be won by faith? Is that a fair question to ask? What battle currently rages before you that can only be won By faith. That's what I'm talking about. What's going on in your life right now? Life may be a mess. You may be at a place where you just say, you know, nothing is going well except this one thing. And here's the one thing. That God has said some things to me. And I'm going to trust Him. And I'm going to keep my eyes on Him. And focus on Him. And how quickly do we, like Peter, begin to sink when we take our eyes off of God? How quickly do we get discouraged and depressed... And we get into this, oh, woe is me attitude and mentality and look at my situation and it's so bad and everything's coming apart and I don't have any friends and life is so hard and everything's such a bad thing. And how desperate has it all become? Wait, 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 wait. That's not from faith, friends. That's not from faith. You know what that is? You ever Anybody ever read Winnie the Pooh? That's That's Eeyore. Eeyore, Eeyore was like, oh, oh. Listen, friends, listen. That is not a person of faith. God is looking for people who will trust him and believe what he says. So what's the battle that's currently raging before you that can only one, be won by faith? Let me just throw out some obvious battles. Marriage. Family. Children integrity, purity, finances, health. How about some less obvious battles? My witness at work, God's calling on my life in ministry, willingness to step out into something difficult, a decision that you know you need to make and you haven't had the guts to make it yet. Maybe you've been spinning your wheels and God is calling you this morning, hey, step up, step up by faith. Let's make some decisions today. Let's do something different in our life. This isn't working, right? One guy said the definition of insanity is doing things the same way over and over and expecting a different result. It's not working. So God is calling us this morning, some of us, step up by faith. Let's move out into something different. Let's trust Him. Let's make a hard decision. Let's do what's hard for the marriage or for parenting or for for the kids or for our finances. But let's trust God and let's move forward. So that's the third thing that Joshua realized about God. God is... Reliable, therefore I can trust his ways. They may seem crazy, but I can trust his ways. Fourth, God is watching, therefore I will obey him. God is watching, therefore I will obey him. Now, there's not a lot that needs to be said here, except that if you just scan through verses 8 through 19, what, what you see there is that it's just proof that Joshua did exactly what God asked him to do. So this is the obedience section. He obeyed God fully. In fact, verse 12 says that Joshua rose early in the morning. He wasn't dinking around. God told him, get up, get the priest together, walk around the city. And Joshua gets up at the crack of dawn and he gets going. Immediate obedience to God. He didn't cut any corners. He didn't make any excuses. He just did what God said. We're talking about right here, unquestioned, continued obedience no matter what. And as I said earlier, the commands of God may appear strange to us. But that doesn't matter. What matters is this, is the obedience of faith that God requires. He just wants us to obey Him. doesn't matter how silly it looks. doesn't matter how foolish it looks. Just obey Him. Imagine the patience that this must have required. The walls didn't fall the first day, second day, third or even fourth day or fifth day. It wasn't until they walked around the city 13 times that the power of God was displayed It was a test of their patience. It was a test of their faith. Would they really believe God? Psalm 37, 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. How often do we fail at this? I mean, how quickly are we discouraged if our Jericho does not fall once or twice around or the first or second time around? But Jesus says we should always pray and not lose heart. Luke 18 So we learn a lesson from all of this. And the lesson that we can draw is this, is that before we serve Jesus fruitfully, we must learn what it means to submit to him absolutely. Absolute, total trust and commitment and surrender to God. Obedience in every way. You do that. You do that. You take care of the things you know to take care of. You are faithful to him and he will use you. Here's the question, are you unreservedly following Jesus Christ? Are you? Could you stand up right now and say without a blush of embarrassment that despite all my faults and failures, you know what, I am unreservedly for Jesus Christ and I will bow willingly before His command. God is watching. I will obey Him. And finally, God is able Therefore, I will live with expectation. God is able. Notice verse 20. So the people shouted. And the, trumpets, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. Two things in that verse that we're told about. Twice it says the people shouted. And then it says the second time... They shouted with a great shout. During all these laps around the city, they were instructed to remain silent. They were not to talk. They weren't to look at each other. They were to go around the city in total silence. The horns were to be blown. But then when they get to this last moment, finally, finally, they're allowed to shout. It's like the anticipation is growing. It's like the six days go by. And finally, the seventh day comes, and they have this moment where they're allowed to open their mouth for the first time, and they absolutely unload. They shout. You can see, you can feel the expectation here. Their obedience and patience had been completely tested. And finally, when they were allowed to open their mouth, they shouted as loud as they could. They were, you know, why did they do that? Because they were expecting God to do what he said. They had a simple childlike faith that said, okay, we're going we're to do this. We're going to go it around it six times, seven times the last day, and here we go. We're going to shout, and actually we believe that God is going to come through and do what he says. And so this is a shout of faith. It was a shout of confidence in God. They're persuaded that victory was certain. And that's what assurance does. Assurance, it's, it's, it's an unshakable belief that God will keep his word. It's a resolute confidence that God will reward those who diligently seek him. And God is glorified by such faith and expectation. And because God is able, there is an edginess to our faith. There's a risk-taking flavor that should characterize our faith. William Carey understood this well. He's the one that said, Ask great things of God. Expect great things from God. And undertake great things for God. This should be our posture as individuals. And this should be the posture, hopefully, an increasing posture of our church. Now, I'm praying, I've am praying. i been praying this way this week. I've been praying throughout this whole series for a renewed expectation at our church, that we must believe that God will reward that kind of faith. Is the vision that we love around here, think about this from this vision that we cherish around here of a holy, sovereign, free and gracious God. Let me ask you a question. Is that vision worthy of all of our might? Is it to to proclaim, to herald a sovereign, free and gracious God? Is that worthy of all of our might? If it is, then are we committed to instilling that in each other? Preaching that to one another. Instilling that within our children and our family. If we believe that God is able, then are we committed by God's power to spread the grace of God throughout this city and to all the unreached peoples of the world as God gives us help? Are we committed to that? Because here's the issue, is that If we are, then we will live with expectation because we will know that God is able. Let's live with expectation as a church. Let's expect God to move. Let's expect him to do some things. Let's expect things not to just be the same old status quo. You know, I get up, I go through the same routine. We go through the same grind every week. But we begin to move. Can our church, can we move by faith and step out into some things that are hard and difficult and require some sacrifice? Because we actually believe, we have the audacity to believe that God is able. He's able. Not only is He able, He wants to see that happen. He wants to move. It's for His glory. It's for His kingdom. It's not for us. It's not for our praise. It's for the expansion of His name and His glory and His kingdom. And we go and we trust Him for that. And we, we crea- we, we're creative. We come up with ideas. What can we do to bring more glory and honor to his name? And we step out on faith. So those are five truths about God that Joshua held on to. And if they begin to master you, it will also change the course of your life. Here they are again. God is worthy. I will consecrate myself to him. God is with me. I will be confident. God is reliable. I can trust his ways. God is watching I will obey Him and God is able. I will live with expectation. So let me close with a couple of takeaways. First, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, first thing I want to say to you is that God can and will save you. Faith is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. And, and I mean that with full sincerity of heart. It doesn't matter what you've done. That your acceptance with God is not on the basis of your goodness. It's not on the basis of your morality. It's not on the basis of your performance or, or your effort. God's acceptance with you of you is based exclusively on His blood and righteousness. It's exclusively based on Christ. And to trust Him by faith is to be forgiven. And that's not only for great men like Joshua, but as we'll see next week, it's for Canaanite prostitutes like Rahab. God's grace is for you. Some people think they can never be saved. They think they're too bad. And, 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 and if that's you, if you think, man, I'm just too bad. God will never reach down and save me. I just want to say this to you is that don't be so arrogant about your sin. Do you honestly think that your sin is greater than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? You don't honestly think that, do you? I mean, if you actually think that, then what, what's happening is that you're thinking way too highly of yourself and way too little of God. True faith will not let the size of your sin be an obstacle because what faith sees is that the mountain of sin is great, but the mountain of, uh, the mount of crucifixion where Jesus died is greater. Faith says, you know what? I'm a great sinner, but I see by faith a greater Savior. Grace is... Grace. Grace is greater than all my sin. And faith says, I'm going for that. When a sinner looks at the cross and sees Jesus making payment for his sin, he says, I want that. Give me that. That's what I need. And that thrills the heart of God because when you do that, God says, yes, now you are making much of my son, Jesus. And finally, if you're a Christian The thing that we learn from this text, there's lots of things, but one of the takeaways from this text is that no matter who you are, God can use you. Understand this, that God uses, God does not use the great in talent, those who are great in talent, but those who humbly trust him, his promises. People that actually believe his word. There are people, God uses people who have a defiance of obstacles. You, You just defy it. Because you trust him by faith. You just act on God's word no matter what. You push through difficulties because you're banking all your confidence on God's word. And if you do that, you'll wake up one day and you'll realize, man, this is amazing, but you know, I can't believe this, but God's actually using me. Wow, God's using me. And you'll be surprised by that. And what a wonderful feeling that is. But listen, the whole history of missionary enterprise was led by people that were not strong and mighty. They were people who made shoes for a living. They were people who did ordinary stuff. And some, some, some of you may be tempted to think that God will never use me because I don't have the necessary gifts. I don't have the necessary talents. I don't have the necessary education. But if you go down that road of thinking, you're praising human achievements. And listen, if you keep going down that road of thinking, I've got to tell you that your usefulness to God will be so, so small because you are trusting in human accomplishment and achievement. God doesn't need to have a PhD to use you. God doesn't need a college education to use you. God doesn't need you to have a position of prominence to use you. The truth is, if you're looking for a person or to find people with great leadership gifts... Or potential. You don't have to look to the front to find it. Those who accomplish great things for God don't start out on the stage. They don't start out as managers and CEOs. They start out they're people who have their face in the book. And their knees on the ground. God is looking for a heart of faith. A man or woman who takes his word at face value and steps out in faith. And if you throw yourself on God in that way... You will find yourself being used by him in ways you never thought possible. Faith pleases God because it makes much of his grace and his glory. It sees the obstacle and it pushes through it. It says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust God by faith. It moves forward. God will use people like that to do all kinds of things. Maybe it's minister to unwed pregnant mothers. Maybe it's a neighbor who's in a desperate condition. Maybe it's an inmate or somebody in prison. It could be a thousand things. The point is this. We must trust God. We must simply take him at his word. And then if we do, we will watch him work in our life. So I want you to grab hold of those five things. These are five truths about God. It's part of rocks of a rock-solid theology. We believe those things about God. I mean, I'm not talking about just intellectually believing them. I'm talking about get those things into your soul. Get them deep down into your heart. And as you meditate on those things and let those things work inside of you, those things will will, will raise up within you a confidence, a trust in God, a faith in God... That will move you to do some pretty insane things. Some pretty radical things. Some pretty exciting things. Some things that will make a difference for Christ in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, shape us through it and change us. Lord, this week may we learn to trust you by faith. May we step out. May we honor you by that. May we not argue with you. May we just simply trust you like a child. And may you use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.